On this week's Securiosity, we get into North Korea's plundering, the U.S. being pummeled, that's not our term, and popular Mac apps leaking browser histories to China. In our interview, we talked to Dimitri Dane, CTO and co-founder of Virgil Security on crypto, the real crypto, not the currency, and his views on security research. This might be the only D.C.-based podcast that's not talking about an op-ed. Welcome to Securiosity. So here we are with another edition of Securiosity. Welcome in. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. It may have been a short week for most of us, but there's been a ton of news. Yes, capped off by an extremely busy Thursday. Also looking forward to a discussion with one of my Mach 37 company CTOs, Dimitri Dane from Virgil Security. It gets kind of nerdy, but we know you like nerdy. Absolutely. But speaking of nerdy, the Justice Department dropped a really nerdy security document on its own. So let's get into it. The Department of Justice announced charges Thursday against a North Korean spy in connection with the 2014 attack on Sony Pictures and the 2017 WannaCry ransomware attack. Park Jin Hyok, a North Korean computer programmer, has been charged with one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit computer-related fraud. The U.S. government alleges that Park was operating under the front company Korean Expo Joint Venture in addition to activities conducted on behalf of North Korea's Reconnaissance General Bureau. The complaint says that alongside the attacks on Sony, Park was part of a group that also attacked AMC theaters and UK-based independent production company Mammoth Screen around the same time as the Sony Pictures hack. Additionally, the charges allege that Park was instrumental in attacks on defense contractor Lockheed Martin and the Bank of Bangladesh. The later incident saw $81 million stolen through the bank's connection to the SWIFT International Communication Network. Greg, these attacks have long since passed. Why is the DOJ rolling out the charges now? And that is the question that is on the minds of everybody that I talked to after this complaint was rolled out. The Sony attack happened three years ago. Wanna Cry was last year, further back than 12 months. Uh, the Bank of Bangladesh thing was in 2016. So why is the Department of Justice spending a random Thursday in September charging what appears to be a junior-level spy inside North Korea's RGB with crimes that the entire regime conducted? I mean, it is it is really a question that I'm hearing from law experts, from cybersecurity experts, the people that go in between both of those expertises. It's really the question that everybody's trying to figure out. And personally, I don't get it either. I think that there is more to be told about why exactly we are dealing with just one person and one charge. And yet we have a huge document that goes into deep forensics on how exactly North Korea hacked Sony and AMC and Lockheed Martin. That seems like a bad idea. Yeah, and that is the opinion of a couple lawyers with backgrounds in the FBI that I talked to. We have laid out a roadmap for how we attributed these attacks. So now what's going to happen? Well, North Korea is going to go back and change things up. They're sitting inside Lab 110 right now going, okay, here's the roadmap of what we did wrong. Let's change the email addresses. We're not going to use Gmail anymore because 
Google probably gave up the goods on us as well. Uh, we're not going to reuse the Gmail accounts or names or anything like that. We're going to change up. We're going to go back to doing what we do. We're going to go cause havoc. We're going to go take the money that we can't get through normal means of business. So we're going to go hack cryptocurrency exchanges, and we're going to hack the banking system. And we're going to keep doing what we're going to keep doing because we're the North Korean regime and that's how we roll. Like, I, I, I'm really having a tough time figuring out what long-term good is here. I understand that there is a lot of naming and shaming going on, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Iran, whether it's Russia, whether it's China. But to me, we've just given them a roadmap on how to change up. They're going to change up and then go right back to hacking. I mean, Jen, if a company came to you and then the Justice Department or cops turned around and said, okay, we're going to figure this out, and then came back three years later and they were like, here's what happened, what, what would the company's reaction be? Well, I imagine that they just were under so much pressure to point the finger at somebody. Um, and this is probably as far as they were able to get. Right. But as so as a CEO, would you be satisfied with this? Like I think about the Sony hack and Michael Linton I mean, and Amy not. Pascal. Like not. they're out of jobs and you it was You have to let go of your your CISO. You have to you know, you just have to. And so I think um, no, this isn't super helpful. Um, in reality, we obviously just led our enemy, if you will, um, to fix their problems. <laughs> We're making them stronger. Yes, it's really uh, amazing to me to see the reaction because, look, the naming and shaming has been something that the government has done. And there have been a lot of people that I've talked to that are like, okay, this is a good first step. We need to make sure that our adversaries know that we're on to them. But we already knew that the government was cool with saying that WannaCry was based on North Korea. Former Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed outside of Christmas last year that said, hey, North Korea did this and we're going to go after them on future attacks. It didn't seem like to me what came out on Thursday moved the needle past what we already knew. From a forensic standpoint, yes. That's great. But if you are – the unveiling of evidence to me is very, very suspect here because – look, I was talking to some legal experts. With the way that they did this, they rolled out the complaint, and the complaint is different from an indictment because an indictment goes before a grand jury. So you have time to build a case, and you want time to build a case because you are eventually looking to bring that person to justice through, the, through a trial. But not in Park, this case. Right. Park Jin Hawk is never going to see the inside of an American courtroom. So putting all that information in there, I get that that is part of the way that our legal system works. But you do that because you want to build a case beyond reasonable doubt so a jury can turn around and convict somebody and put somebody in jail for the crimes they committed. We're not going to convict anybody here. Yeah. We, we've charged this person. This person is not going – unless this person is a wild international traveler – which we know from reading the complaint that they're not. The only place that they've been traveling is from Yangyang to some places in northeast China. China's not going to extradite this person. North Korea certainly is not going to extradite this person. So why are we giving the blueprint to how we go about our forensics when really all, this, all, 
all that is going to come of it is just a roadmap for how we figure it out, and North Korea is going to go back and change up. I'm really kind of scratching my head. Look, these things take time. I understand that a— It's been three years, yes, though, right? The, the, you need so, to come up with something. You need to come up with something, and these law enforcement officials are, are, are hamstrung to do what they are, are doing, and they have orders. And look, I get that and everything. I just don't see from a long-term perspective what this helps solves. I don't. I guess we'll see what comes next. In other news, in a speech Wednesday, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen painted a daunting picture of the digital threat landscape, referring to it as a pandemic. Cyberspace is now the most active battlefield, and the attack surface extends to every single American home, Nielsen said at a speech at George Washington University. While for Nielsen the threat map is grim, she made the case that the Trump administration is tackling it head on. The United States, she said, is using a full spectrum of options to punish adversaries. Jen, Nielsen used the word pandemic. Is that a less scarier term than the cyber 9-11 or the cyber Pearl Harbor that we have been talking about for years? I don't think we should be looking for a less scarier term. I mean, it's just this is scary and we have to solve it. And, you know, I'm still afraid that we're going to see our power grid go down. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that is something that is clearly on the minds of, of DHS and the intelligence community and everything. But just looking at it from a term, I actually like this term because I do think that it is a little bit less scary because Cyber 9-11 or Cyber Pearl Harbor, let's, besides tacking on the, the cyber part of it, I think is is lazy. I think looking at it as just like one event is a bad way to frame it. Oh, this like, is an ongoing. Yeah, it, it's something many, that many, is, many, it, many. It is yeah. ongoing. So I like calling it a pandemic because I think it gets to the root of the matter a little bit more. It's a little bit more systemic, and it's an ongoing thing. And it's it almost takes the mind frame of. Uh, disease, which is something that has been talked about in circles for a while in D.C., approaching cyber from like a national health perspective, which I think is ultimately a smart way to go about it because it does really relate to the ongoing nature of this. You're not going to stop an event the same way that you are going to stop a 9-11 or a Pearl Harbor. It's not just an event and right. then an event, yeah. and then an event, and then an event. This is an everyday thing. So I like the framing of that, the, the full spectrum of options we could talk about for hours, but at least I, I, I think that this is a good way to frame the argument moving forward. So from the pandemic to being pummeled, the NSA's Deputy Director George Barnes said it pains him to see the unrelenting theft of trade secrets by American adversaries and suggested that much more needed to be done to share threat information with the private sector. Barnes's lament of the erosion of America greatness follows the release of a report by the country's counterintelligence agency that accused China, Russia, and Iran of using cyber capabilities to systematically rob American entrepreneurs of intellectual property. So I thought we'd put orders in place to make China stop. So this goes back to the conversation we were having with regards to North Korea. That That's another thing about the naming and shaming. We Yes, we put orders in place and we named and shamed a bunch of PLA officers back in 2015 through the Obama Xi agreement. And there has been some conversations as to whether China ever stopped hacking American companies. Of course they didn't. No, they, they figured out ways to kind of obfuscate 
what they were doing. Um, and it, it, it actually, you know, it, it kind of involves both of the two news items that we were talking about. This isn't just an event. This is a pandemic. Uh, I, I think that companies from Lockheed Martin to Raytheon to the banks to the manufacturing companies would all agree this is this is event after event after event, and they are getting pummeled. So saying that we're getting pummeled is one thing, but we've also been getting, we were getting pummeled in 2011, we were getting pummeled in 2013, we were getting pummeled in 2015. Like, yeah, I get the argument, but it almost is like, okay, we, we've been saying this now, like, what are we doing about it? And is the naming and shaming fixing things? I would posit that it's not because <laughs> we're, I'm sure that we're going to be having a conversation. It might be a month from now. It might be five months from now. It might be a year from now where some nation state has just absolutely pwned some big company and everybody's going to go, well, what are we going to do about it? And it's going to look no different than the conversations we had before or the conversations that we're going to have down the road unless something changes. And I'm not sure that just going up there and saying we're getting pummeled is going to change anything. So in private sector news, Jen, you can go ahead and hack that car in peace. In a move greeted happily by cybersecurity researchers around the world, Tesla announced that hacking the company's software as part of good faith security research will not void your car's warranty. The announcement is part of a goodwill revamping of Tesla's vulnerability disclosure program to allow research without risking legal action, a void warranty, or a broken car, as long as hackers play by the rules. Casey Ellis, founder of bug bounty company BugCrowd called the move a massive step forward in taking the risk out of vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty by Tesla, and it's maximizing the benefit of a safer internet. I sincerely hope this becomes the status quo. Jen, guess we are going to see a lot more Teslas at hacking conferences now. I think we're going to see a lot more hackers driving Teslas. Well, it, it just whether it's driving Teslas or just playing around with Teslas, you know, Casey calling this the status quo, I think that that is a smart way to go about this. And I think that that is something that is needs to happen. I mean, we talk, let's compare this to the election security stuff that we have been talking about in the companies like ESNS and Dominion Voting. Like, this is a model that they should follow. If it's goodwill people that are trying to submit vulnerabilities to them why why would you not want that like it, it really pains me that this conversation is still pervasive in that companies turn a blind eye to people that are coming to them and saying hey your stuff's broken you should probably fix it they don't have to do that they could use that for their own they could go they sell could, it yeah. to, a, to a zero day vendor that would probably pay them 10 times whatever a bug bounty disclosure might pay them but instead, they're doing, you know, the ethical thing and saying, hey, you should probably fix this. So It also gets us closer to um, unmanned vehicles, right? I mean, if we find all the flaws in this and we continue this on, I think we're, we'll get closer. Yes. And, you know, it points to our interview with Dimitri. Dimitri talks mm-hmm. a lot about this same thing. So Apple's famous walled garden doesn't appear to be keeping all the undesirables out. New research on one of the most profitable apps in the official app store reveals developers are sidestepping around Apple's controls to surreptitiously grab a user's browser history and send it back to China, a move that seems to clearly break Apple's data collection and storage rules. 
Even so, the app remains up and running on the Mac store, and Apple's yet to comment on the subject. Former NSA staffer and notorious Mac hacker Patrick Wardle and another security researcher known on Twitter as Privacy is First published research on Friday spotlighting Adware Doctor, a popular anti-adware application that sits among the overall top-grossing apps in the entire Mac store. The app, the researchers write, steals browser histories and a handful of other private information that it should not be able to access, including app store searches and running processes. Um, huge problem, right, Greg? Uh, yeah. If you have a top-grossing app in your app store that people are using to block adware and instead it's sending <laughs> browser history to China, I would imagine that Apple would frown upon that. I'm kind of shocked that Apple hasn't commented on the subject or at least pulled the app because I'm surprised it's not as, as we are recording this podcast, I checked. Adware Doctor's still up. It's still among the top 10 paid apps that you can buy in the Mac App Store. And I mean, it just goes to show that even as meticulous as Apple is with their quote unquote walled garden uh, app stores, things like this can sneak through and app developers can program their apps to do whatever it is that they're doing and it may slip under Apple's radar. I mean, look, Apple's a trillion dollar company. We've talked about, or not we haven't talked about it, but everybody else in tech journalism has talked about Apple and their trillion dollar um, market capital. Look, even they have problems with security. It really goes to show that no matter how big of a company that you are, stuff's gonna slip through the cracks. I still go back to how many people actually really care that their search history went to a company in China. Well, and that gets into a, we could do an entire (laughs) podcast series on data privacy because look, if it's not going to China, it's going to Cupertino or it's going over to Google in Mountain View or it is going to a host of other companies that we all just hope and pray are you know, being good stewards with the information that they give us. Um, yeah, uh, look, th- this is how the internet works. I'm sure that nobody listening to this disagrees. Like, it's just a matter of, you know, look, these are the rules that Apple set up. And Apple, if Apple's going to follow the, their own rules to the letter of the law, I would not be surprised if by Saturday or Sunday, you're not seeing Adware Doctor on the App Store at all. Interesting. So speaking of their own rules, internet giants Facebook, Twitter, and Google took center stage in D.C. on Wednesday at congressional hearings aimed to move forward in solving the problem of foreign influence campaigns on social media networks. Jack Dorsey was quoted as saying, we simply haven't done enough. And despite the regular infusion of mea culpas, Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg and Dorsey touted improvements by both companies in combating foreign influence, including, most pointedly, the recent removal of hundreds of accounts across multiple independent foreign campaigns. Just last week, Facebook banned Myanmar's commander-in-chief as ethnic violence continues in that country. Jen, the question for you. These companies have been apologizing for what seems like forever. Is your opinion swayed by the actions that have recently been taken? You know, (laughs) I think they're going to be apologizing forever. Um, you know, but in all honesty, we shouldn't be getting our news from Twitter. We shouldn't be getting our news from Facebook. I just, you know, I'm sort of sick of hearing Facebook and Twitter sort of being pointed at and blamed for, um, you know, election votes. I, you know, it's our own faults for not reading real news. Right. And, and at this, I, I get where they're coming from. 
at that point, but I think that it is a I, I, I don't think I think that Facebook needs to openly be more transparent about how they view themselves as a company. And I, I, I'm sure that they think about it one way, but the public and the market thinks about it a little bit differently. I really think that Facebook's kind of stiff arm to being called a media platform is at the root of these problems. Yeah. Look, you have gone to publishers time and time again and said engage on this platform, and but you can't turn around and then say you're not a media platform. You are. There are some people that look at Facebook as just the internet. That's where they get their information. Ugh. If you are putting their yes, it's we terrible. could we could have a conversation about that. You <laughs> it's know, for, for pictures hours. of your dog and kids. Well, but in some countries it is not, and that's directly part of Facebook's strategy. Facebook has the their free offerings in places like Africa, in places like Malaysia. Like yeah. we can look at this through the lens of U.S. politics all we want, but. Look, the, think of what is going on with the Rohingya mess in, in Myanmar. That happens because Facebook offers their platform for free. So people use that as their internet. So they're getting their information from it. I think that they need to wrestle a little bit more with how that has unfolded. That's a big problem. And I think looking at it through the lens of, oh, we are a media platform would begin to change the thinking inside Facebook and get to some answers that really help the world and, and, and can stop this use. They're going to have a of, lot of work to do, though, if they're going to switch over to being a media company or a media platform. I mean, it, how many it people doesn't have, have it doesn't multiple. have to be their primary yeah. their primary way of of business, but I think that they need to embrace that. It's among their top three. Like, I I, I just I I think a shift in thinking would go a long way to securing the platform and securing securing the platform through the disinformation lens. That's that that's my opinion. I think that thinking through that lens would do Facebook a lot of good. Do I think that that is going to happen? No, because if it was going to happen, it would have already happened. I just don't think it's very feasible. Now to our interview with Dimitri Dane from Virgil Security. Dimitri finds himself at the intersection of cryptography and IoT, and not so much the smartwatches or thermostats we love, but working with industrial IoT. Think more about ICS systems or autonomous vehicles that will power our future. Really interesting combo, check it out. Joining us today is Dimitri Dane, CTO and co-founder of Virgil Security, provider of end-to-end -end encryption. So Dimitri, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So tell us about Virgil Security and how you got your start in cybersecurity. Well, first of all, thank you. You're, uh, we've been a part of Max37 family from the get-go. In fact, we started the company because of Max37. That really gave us an opportunity. Uh, and that in the DC area, having an accelerator specific to cybersecurity that sort of gave us a shot to prove out the idea and then go global. What was your sort of background cybersecurity before before Virgil? So we uh, we an interesting team. So we've always done security and added it to our products, and we thought that uh, that's sort of something wrong with the with the way it was deployed. So we, uh, Michael and I, my co-founder, we we were we were doing the first versions of Apple Airport in the late '90s, uh, and uh, that was 
Wi-Fi at the time it was known as 802.11, security was always an afterthought. It was not something that you did uh, in the beginning of the product, not something you designed in. But then when you got to scale, you certainly saw that as, a, as something you had to do. Uh, and all the struggles you've seen with the Wi-Fi and 802.11 are kind of indicative of that. Security was always slapped on. Uh, but we, we did it and, and it kind of worked well enough. It's all over the world. Uh, after that, I worked in a program uh, at DARPA that had to do a lot with uh, radios and wireless communications, where again, now you saw something far more sensitive, but security was always slapped on at the end. Uh, you had to, uh, to go through far more vigorous process than Wi-Fi had to go through, but at the end of the day, that was something slapped on, and uh, then you moved on, you deployed. And then what we saw uh, really at uh, 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, suddenly you've seen a spike, the Web 2.0 craze kind of started to come down, the social network has started to come down, these companies have matured, and you started getting a lot of IoT companies. We really got into the market where we started deploying uh, in-mass connected devices, we started calling them IoT, uh, but again, the first wave of all those devices really didn't have security in mind, and that, that includes Apple and, and iPhone. They really looked at security much later in the product cycle. Really with iPhone 5 is where you've seen the focus kind of shift to privacy and security. So to us, uh, our experience from the back from the Apple Airport days and the communication radios that we've built with, together with DARPA uh, gave us the understanding of how it should be done and understanding how developers need to be given better tools uh, and they don't have good tools to build security into their products from the get-go right at the beginning, uh, at the design of the product, security built-in. So how have industrial companies learned to leverage um, IoT devices and connect them inside their operations? Well, it's an interesting question. We really, uh, if, if you look at where we are today with uh, industrial companies, everyone has always thought that they would be almost leading the, the IoT revolution, but that has not been the case, really. Uh, you've seen smartphones kind of lead the way, they were first fully connected devices, then you saw smart home. Smart home over the last five years has been the leading deployer of various IoT solutions. Oddly, not smart office. So you, you're only just starting to see uh, large operators of office space kind of deploy IoT devices. So you've seen a, a little bit of a lag, and the big reason for a lag is that they simply cannot trust this infrastructure. The existing devices that they can purchase uh, over, uh, over the counter, if you will, uh, or shelf, off the shelf, they really um, they don't have security in mind. They were built as almost prototypes. And when you think about what you have in your house, and I have lots of connected devices in my house, uh, they get swapped out every couple of years, and that's okay. That perfectly works just fine. It works fine with your phone, it works fine even with some connected things in your house. That does not work with industrial IoT. So uh, a lot of the interest in, in investment over the last few years have really gone into trying to make security relevant for the industrial IoT folks so they can deploy in mass. So the entire promise of 10 billion devices a year being deployed at Cisco keeps trumping around, 100 billion devices being connected to the internet, that does not happen without security. It just cannot happen without security. So with IoT more on the consumer side, we've seen attacks like the Mirai uh, botnet. On the industrial side, you have things like Trisis that have the critical infrastructure um, companies and enterprises, you know, kind of 
on their toes and, and vigilant to what is possible with industrial IoT. I'm wondering what the reaction has been from your customers when it comes to things like Mirai and Trisis. Has that woken them up to what you were saying with getting on the right page and how all this stuff needs to be secured? Like what has been their metamorphosis when you talk about this? Well, the really, uh, it's very hard. It had been before uh, very hard to prove to these people that first of all, IoT is relevant to them. Uh, and I think uh, the last few transformations we've seen of you know, Uber helped, oddly enough, you've seen something very analog uh, become digital so quickly and, and incumbents just get okay. wrapped out. Um, but so security to them, uh, they understand they, they have the need, so they have to do it. Uh, how do you do security in that, that kind of environment when, yes, you have Mirai and, and similar things. Uh, when we come, when, uh, when we sort of look at uh, our uh, product mix and what people kind of uh, buy from us, uh, previously it was all about messaging, protecting the privacy of the information, be that IoT messaging or human messaging. Now, when they come and they say, how come Apple has over a billion connected devices deployed, they can do secure firmware updates and we can't? How come my organization with 50, 60, 100,000 IoT devices has no control over what new device anyone can plug into my network, whereas with Apple, no one can fake a new iPhone? I want the same capability. Why can't we get the same capability? And if you look at how Apple achieved that, it's all crypto-driven. Yeah, the okay. app store is driven by cryptography. Uh, ability to not create your own iPhone, right? So in, introduce a new device to, the, to their platform is driven by crypto. Uh, those are the kind of tools that people have really started picking up. And those are the industrial IoT vendors that we're working with. They, they look at it not from a singular app perspective, but really ripping out their, their network architecture, introducing crypto into every device, managing it uh, at that level, uh, and then allowing these devices to be plugged into anything you want. So they, they're fully decentralized. So we're seeing these industrial IoT companies really skip the centralized approach we've had over the last 10 years with the cloud, everything goes to the cloud, you control everything via the cloud, and more into a decentralized world where they can no longer simply say, hey, I have my corporate network and therefore it's trusted. Uh, and then like, well, yeah, it is trusted, but who else can plug in devices uh, into your network? Well, anyone. Well, how do you know what devices you have on the network? Well, I, 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 I may have some, some management platform that may give me an idea about a small portion of my network or even half my network, but the question becomes, well, but anyone else can bring a new device to the network? And the answer is nearly always yes. And we've seen this actually, State Department got hacked the same way. They had a, right. a rogue employee bring a new device on the network and deploy it. Uh, so these organizations, when they deploy, especially when they have many locations, many networks all over the world, um, so you're, you're thinking uh, companies with billions in revenue, in order for them to go full IoT, full digital, full control, full analytics of the data that's generated all over the world, uh, that's the kind of platform they need. They need full crypto control about every single device that operates and generates data on the network. So do you see the future being more walled gardens where the cryptography kind of dictates the way that companies stand up their consumer-facing products? Well, it depends how you look at it, right? Uh, on, on one hand, it's a walled garden where they know exactly what goes on to the network. On another hand, they allow any device all over the world to be plugged into anything you want. You no longer need to trust your token. 
right? You no longer need a firewall, you no longer need a corporate network, no more VPNs. Everything is end-to-end -end right on the device. As long as it communicate out to back to you, uh, it's good enough for you. So uh, on one hand, it's a walled garden from your own network perspective, but it's a very much distributed network uh, in the way you deploy it. So you actually have a lot less overhead in deploying that. Uh, you know, Apple doesn't, doesn't control what network you con connect your iPhone with to. Yet, uh, all the telemetry generated by your iPhone, all the firmware updates, they're completely secure and there are no issues with it. We know very few problems in their platforms internally. And yet, anyone can use it all over the world on any platform, and it works very well. So they, the companies will look at that as sort of the guiding principles. They want to be able to plug in anywhere you want, no infrastructure needed, no special VPNs, firewalls, no, no even special software to do analytics on the data they're generating, because it's all going to be internet encrypted, all random. And they're the only owners of that data. So really moving away from uh, a provider uh, that uh, sits in between them and can see the data as well. You know, let's not name some cloud companies, but that generally uh, the, the data that generates, a lot of these guys will never allow anyone but themselves to see it. So if you see in the, on the consumer side, where consumers always have a choice, hey, I can uh, maybe share some of my data with uh, Facebook or Google and get something for free. Uh, on the enterprise side, it's never a question. They will always pay to maintain control over their own data. They will not simply give it up. So that's the clientele that generally is going to lead the next revolution. They're going to go full distributed. So when I think of IoT being hacked, I think about someone hacking into my Nest cameras, watching my dog, sleeping on the sofa, but should I really just be worried about things like traffic lights in my city being hacked into, causing like mass chaos? I think yes, and that's one of the reasons why you haven't seen, uh, you haven't seen a lot of large deployments. Uh, we work with a company called Wave Mobile, um, uh, out of California, the Silicon Valley base, and have something around 7,000 intersections that are using the new, uh, new DSRC, they're called DSRC radios that have uh, really enabled vehicle to infrastructure communication. They were one of the enabling infrastructure uh, radios for autonomous vehicle operations. Okay. And the key concern there is uh, managing the infrastructure, controlling who can and cannot communicate, um, and what can that infrastructure really communicate and what kind of damage can it do. So only trusted actors should be allowed in the network. Uh, that really will drive the adoption of autonomous vehicles. If we cannot secure that, those networks, in effect, they will simply not be allowed. So, and, and you will simply not have autonomous vehicles. So autonomous vehicles are really not autonomous. They will always be plugged in and communicating back, uh, even among themselves. Uh, and making that secure is very different from securing your uh, webcam uh, or your dog cam at home. There are different repercussions, right? So that, that simply cannot fail. So whereas with a lot of social media or Facebook hacks or Google hacks that we've seen where lots of data got leaked out, Yahoo got totally owned many times. Uh, and uh, when you see that happening, that's not that big a deal. People don't really see uh, a lot of kind of issues coming out of it for them personally. Um, even the huge hack of government data where all the um, Office of Personnel Management OPM hack, right. OPM hack uh, for you really haven't seen people kind of complain and creating, they got their credit reports and they're done, they got credit monitoring. That's not going to be the case in autonomous vehicles. That's simply not going to be the case in industrial IT. 
Uh, damages there will be obvious, they will be substantial, uh, and people will potentially go to war to, with you that way. They will not shoot you, but they may cripple your infrastructure. And that's why uh, the security concerns there are so different from uh, your, your typical consumer use case. So is there anything consumers could do, or will it ever get to a point that security is just baked into the devices and the consumers won't have to worry about and they can just trust their device to be secure and convenient at the same time? Uh, look, uh, I mean, that, this is sort of the premise of what Virgil does, is making it possible for every developer uh, to do this without being uh, a crypto expert or expert in deploying key management systems at scale. This is what we want every stuff, everywhere for anyone from startup to be able to do. On the other hand, you have lots of apps that could do it, have the capability to have the time, the funding, and they choose not to because you're the product, right? So you, you, you have companies whose entire business model is based on, we give you something for free, uh, and as a result, we know everything about you. Uh, those companies will not deploy cryptography at scale. You are not going to see a similar approach to Android ecosystem that Apple has taken with an iPhone ever. Okay. You're never going to see some of the chat applications, let's take Telegram for example, that will be very serious about security because you are the product. You're getting something for free uh, and they need something back from you and uh, the, something back from you is your privacy in a way. Um, so that's, uh, you, you're, not, you're simply not going to see it in the consumer space. Uh, so as, as a user, you always have to kind of look at, are you getting this for free, but is it really free? Uh, but we, what we want to do is when we look, especially when we work uh, with uh, IoT devices, so your smart home devices, your smart locks, your smart lights, your future smart vehicle and autonomous vehicle, there I think there is a definitive expectation of security from a consumer. Consumer expects that thing to pretty much be secure. Uh, and it, I think it's very different from your uh, email account being secure. People can accept that sometimes it gets hacked and then it's, it's not that big a deal. Uh, well, sometimes it is for, in, in some cases, hey, uh, the election hack. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, some, most of the time it really isn't. Uh, that's not the case with your car, right? If the car suddenly doesn't work for whatever reason, that's a huge deal. Right. That, that's simply not going to be acceptable. So I think uh, consumer will drive it subconsciously because they will not accept devices that get hacked. They will simply be thrown out. There will be lots of lawsuits. But consumers are just fine accepting apps that, that trade privacy and security uh, for something they can, they can get for free. So, so you talked about Telegram there very briefly, and I know your company just released some research into a new feature that Telegram has rolled out. Talk to me a little bit about that research. So this is actually uh, something interesting, and you're, you're not going to see this just from Telegram. You're definitely going to see it from some of the social, some of the other social apps going to okay. try to get into the space. Uh, what they want to do is they don't want to just know what you do online and what sites you visit and how to advertise, but they want to own your identity. In other words, Telegram introduced a feature that allows you to upload your passport information, your financial statements, uh, where, who your cable provider is, maybe your telco provider, maybe cell phone bills, whatever it is, uh, for KYC reasons. So you can do investment online, maybe you can do uh, some other things online that require KYC, know your customer okay. requirements. Uh, the big problem with that is these companies uh, traditionally 
not, not simply didn't care about security, but security was something that was the enemy of the spread of the application. So Telegram is in a very similar way. They, they allow you to upload this information, but uh, it is not secure on their end. Uh, yet you see the marketing uh, saying that, hey, this is secure. Um, so it's it generally very hard to break through that. When the company says, hey, it's secure, and we find some problems with it, uh, by the way, Telegram did not release any fixes and none are planned as far as we know, okay. uh, simply because that isn't something they care about. Uh, that security is something they market, their marketing team is very much aware and markets against you saying, hey, everything is protected, just trust us. Uh, and they're not the only ones. You know, we have to say that Google is in the same spot, Facebook is in the same spot, just trust us. Uh, and that's when it gets scary when it not, it's not just your social media activity now. Uh, it's also your passport, uh, your driver's license, uh, everything that's extremely sensitive from your end. Uh, not only do they have ability to access information, they're more than likely selling it to people who you don't know anything about. You don't control that. It's extraterritorial. In other words, Facebook was very happy selling data to the British, uh, to the Russians. Uh, that's their business. You know, people forget about that. They're supposed to do that. That is what their shareholders require them to do and punishing them when they don't. Right. Uh, so you have to understand when you work with those kind of features, security becomes a requirement. Uh, and we very much, uh, I, I have no doubt we will see governments come down very hard when it comes to personal data being uh, uploaded to these providers with no regard to uh, consumer protection. So we like to end these interviews on sort of a fun note. So what connected device can't you live without? Obviously your phone, right? You, you, I, I, be able phone. To, I mean, what's your, favorite, phone. what's your favorite one that's not your phone? Uh, honestly, I wouldn't be able to open my house without my phone. <laughs> so at this point, <laughs> that seems... Uh, uh, look, I, I've gotten hooked on connected cars. Uh, I think that really is uh, the way forward. I think that will transform the economy in ways that we are just starting to even imagine. Uh, most Americans will get uh, an hour or two of their lives back. Uh, that will tremendously grow the entertainment industry. Uh, so autonomous vehicles and even the semi-autonomous vehicles that we're seeing today, we can look, think about Uber as semi-autonomous, uh, somebody else driving you. Uh, that transformed how much time I was able to, uh, to work, when I was able to work, uh, and then entertain myself. So, I think connected cars are a transformative going forward. Great. Dimitri, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Dimitri for joining us. Jen, I hope Dimitri has a Tesla. That way he can poke around on connected cars as much as he wants, and no one will legally anyway bother him. Can we talk about how our community is completely obsessed with Teslas? Was it like the fourth podcast we've run into a Tesla talk? Securiosity, your home for election security fights, and Tesla fandom. Apparently, they're the same audience. Who knew? <laughs> That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Everybody, please tell your best friends to rate and subscribe. Five stars. Hook us up. Be a friend. And as always, stay curious. <laughs>